You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Our passage from, for today is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And it says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impur- impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family. It's uh, good to gather with you all. Let me uh, welcome you if you're joining us as a visitor and just introduce myself. My name is Will, and uh, it's my joy to be able to open up God's word for us this morning. Let me begin. I just want to pray on our behalf. I want to pray for maybe some of the things you guys are feeling this morning, and then I want to pray that um, this, this passage in particular, that the Holy Spirit would open up our hearts to receive uh, what, what the Lord has. Isaiah 53, that describes the, the suffering servant. It predicts and prepares us for the Messiah, and it said concerning him that surely he has carried our griefs and our sorrows. What that tells me, Lord, is that with the griefs and the sorrows that we face in this world, you um, care about that, and you invite us as your people to bring those griefs to you, to carry them. And I don't know why, it just seems the, the world around us right now, um, beginning in our own county, going up through New York, um, and then even around the world, there are, uh, like your word says, that our, our feet are quick to shed blood. That's, that's what we're like as human beings. We uh, build up anger, and we somehow minimize human beings to the point of even death. So I think of shootings that have happened in our own county. Um, I, I think more broadly right now is uh, there's much conversation happening around abortion and the stronghold that this evil act that we somehow um, diminish as, as, um, as a simple medical procedure, the taking of a human life that we diminish as a simple medical procedure. Lord, it's, it's wicked and we're grieved by it and we ask that you would put a stop to it. We ask for just and right laws, but more than that, we ask for new hearts that would think of such things as unthinkable. We think about the lives taken yesterday that seems to be on the basis of racial hatred in New York, and just the, again, the swiftness that human beings, uh, where their feet rush to shed blood. We think of what's happening in, in Ukraine. Lord, we could just go on and on about the, the griefs that face us in this world, and we don't know what else to do but to come to you and say, Lord, uh, heal us, 
God, make right everything that's wrong in this world. Return like you said you would. And while we wait for that, help us as your people to simply be faithful with what you've called us to. In a dark world, let us shine as lights, particularly this morning in the ways that we, um, would you refine and renew whose attention we're after, who we want to please, uh, who, who we desire to serve ultimately? Lord, would you give us a shrunken perspective of people's opinions about us? And would you increase our perspective about what you think about us? Lord, you just spoke to us through that passage, through the Apostle Paul, where he says, having been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Lord, set us free from pleasing people and doing what is culturally or familial or in our social groups, set us free from what's popular in the eyes of people and set us free to serve you wholly and truly, seeking your approval above all else. Lord, you test our hearts. You know what motivates us. You see why we do what we do. And so I pray that you would speak into our hearts, convict us, and show us the solution to our people pleasing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, so, as many of you know, I'm a dad of four kids. Got Caleb, my oldest, and then three girls after him. And my youngest, Ava, she's two and a half. And so, some of you have sort of seen this unique and somewhat hilarious season of life. This is how I would describe Ava's season of life. She's old enough to be social, but not old enough to be socially aware. Does, does that make sense? Like, old enough to engage, old enough to speak. She's a great conversation partner. If you're ever wanting someone to talk to, just sit down with her. She's a great, a great conversation partner. Like she's social and she can interact, but she has no idea of like how her actions, conduct, words come across uh, to other people. So she's got like uh, high social engagement, low awareness of how that engagement maybe comes across to other people. So for example, like uh, you, you see it at the gym, we have this gym that's sort of nice and it's like an office setting where people are working and, and just like a professional environment. She will come running through the halls, barefoot, singing Daniel Tiger songs at the top of her lungs, no concern about what people think about her. Um, or, or you really see it when she puts makeup on, if you've ever seen a two and a half year old put makeup on. She sees her sisters, you know, putting makeup on, and so she wants to be a part of that, and she thinks she looks great. She looks like something out of a horror movie after she's got the, like, Joker face going on and her, like, whatever it's called, eyeshadow, I don't know what it is, the blue stuff that goes, like, to her hairline all the way. Like, it's terrifying what she looks like, but she doesn't care. Like, she's not aware of what people think about her or what her face looks like with this makeup on. It's just fun. She's just doing it. Uh, she's got no volume control, uh, no sense of how her words might offend. Like, she'll just tell you the truth. Like, she, she, no, no qualifications, no concern, uh, no concern for what she's wearing in front of people. Uh, in fact, we were, like, out the door this morning, and we had to, like, turn around, bring clothes because we had to get here, and change her in the van uh, because of what she was wearing would have been pushing the limits of what's appropriate uh, in church. So, again, we get it. Like, she's social, but she's not socially aware. But something's going to happen in the next couple of years where she's going to become aware of what people think about her, aware of the fact that they might have opinions about her, and all of a sudden she's going to become 
obsessed with what people think. For her, maybe it could manifest, I doubt this for her, but it could manifest by being really shy and not wanting to really do a lot because that might embarrass or earn disapproval. Or she's going to be really bold and, 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 and really outgoing, but, but the motive behind it is, again, similarly going to be to win the approval of people. She is sadly going to become obsessed with the opinions of people, and I know that because that's what happens to all of us, doesn't it? Once we become aware of ourselves, aware of our sense of like ego, our sense of self, and the fact that other people have an opinion about that sense of self, we all of a sudden become enslaved to what people think. And I use that word enslaved intentionally because uh, what we say and do uh, is controlled by the response of people around us. Maybe we don't do what we should do because we're afraid of what people will think. Maybe we do things we shouldn't do in order to win their approval. Maybe we just do normal, everyday things that people do, but underneath it is motiva- it's motivated by this deep longing for the approval of people. We are enslaved to what people think. I think it's summarized so well in, in the book title. The book was written a number of years ago, biblical counselor, guy's name is Ed Welch, and the book title is When People Are Big and God is Small. That is our problem. We give God-like status to the opinions of people, and they become really big in our eyes. Meanwhile, God shrinks down to having little to any influence over how we live at all. God becomes small, and people become really big. What is the way that God designed us to interact and to have like this awareness of ourselves? I think if we were operating in a healthy way, if we were operating in the way that God designed us, this is how we would go about our lives. We would seek to please God by loving people and sort of just forgetting about ourselves. Uh, It's not that we would be like super concerned with what people think. It'd almost be as though true humility, which is where you don't think about yourself at all. You sort of just live and you forget about yourself. Instead of doing that, what we do instead is we seek to please people because we love ourselves and we forget about God all together. And so in this passage in 1 Thessalonians, what Paul is describing, broadly speaking, is how he went about to share the gospel in this city of Thessalonica. But as we look more closely at it, what we're going to see is what we need to be set free from our constant people-pleasing, our constant obsession with what people think about us. It will, I think, if we allow it to, enable us to live these beautifully free lives of self-forgetfulness, where we seek to please God by simply serving and loving other people while forgetting all about ourselves. And so let's walk through this passage looking at these three, three, things, three things. Number one, what does this passage tell us about people-pleasing? I want to look closely at the passage. Then I want to move from the passage to our lives. I want us to consider where does people-pleasing show up in our own lives? And then finally, I want to consider how do we get free? What does this passage point to that frees us from our obsession with people pleasing. 
Let's begin by looking at the passage. If you guys shut your Bibles, open them back up. Let's begin reading chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, beginning in verse 1. Paul says the following, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of the Apostle Paul for a second and think about what he has on the line when he goes into a new city in the Roman world to preach the gospel. We could certainly say he has put quite a bit on the line. They go into hostile cities. He pays his own way. He often faces hunger, uh, sickness, sometimes homelessness. Most of the cities that he enters into, he faces the possibility of insult, injury, or even death. So Paul is invested. He has put some valuable things on the line. He, he has some skin in the game when he shows up to a city to preach the gospel. But what he is alluding to here is there's something that he could seek after when he shows up in a new city that would make all that he has put on the line meaningless, vanity, vain. He says here immediately in chapter 2 that there's something that he could seek after, something that he could pursue that would make all his work as an apostle, as an apostle meaningless, vain, having no value whatsoever. What would make his missionary visits vanity? If he showed up to these cities seeking applause, praise, approval, or glory from people. And he almost alludes at the bottom in verse 6 that that he could perhaps seek this. Let me read verse 6 one more time. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as an apostle of Christ. I think this is what Paul is saying. Like on the social hierarchy of church life, being an apostle, an apostle is kind of up there. Like that's a significant opinion. And, and being an apostle, he, he could indeed seek glory from people. That's what he's saying. He could go into cities or churches. He's got a reputable name. He's written some popular letters. He's written letters that have been read by more people than anyone else in the history of the world. Uh, he could go into places seeking glory, attention, applause, praise, approval from people. But this is what we have to understand out of the gate. What Paul is saying to us is if he went into these cities, putting it all on the line to seek approval from people, it would have been meaningless, vanity, pointless, In other words, for us to understand personally what this means for us is you could gain for yourself all the attention, all the approval, all the applause your heart could ever desire from people. You could get all of it. You could fill your cup to the brim of it. And do you know what you would say at the end of it? It was pointless. It was meaningless. It's not what I thought it would be it's vanity. What we have to be confronted with out of the gate this morning is the lie that Paul addresses that positive thoughts from people is actually going to satisfy you. It's not. You cannot live your life for the approval of people. It will turn out to be vain. Let's keep reading what he says in verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So now he says he goes into Roman cities and he ends up receiving not praise and approval from people. He, he ends up receiving the opposite of what you and I so desire. He receives shame, disapproval, 
disgrace. People look down on him and judge him, uh, but this doesn't stop him. This doesn't change him. He continues to faithfully preach the gospel, even though it comes with shame. How is he able to do this? Let's continue to read in verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but I think this is the key. This is how he does it. This is how he goes into places, earning the disapproval of people, but moves forward anyway. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. This is the core of this passage. This is the central point Paul is making. Paul is helping us understand that he is not enslaved by what people think about him. And he's not so much saying like, one of these bitter, self-sufficient people, like, oh, I don't care what anybody else thinks about me. I'm fine in and of himself. No, he is concerned about what someone thinks about him. It's just that he is not moved, swayed, or enslaved by the opinions of people. He says, we seek to please God who tests our heart. So he didn't show up in Philippi, he goes on to say, to, to flatter them with nice words so that they would think highly of them. He didn't come with an attempt to deceive he says, to, to win their approval and perhaps uh, gain some monetary benefit from them. He says, I did not come seeking glory from people. This is what Paul is saying. This is the aim of my life, to please the God who made me. That is the aim of my life. And if you approve of me, that's fine, but it's not what I live for. I'm not living my life for your applause, approval, or praise. I'm living my life to cross into eternity and then hear from my Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what drives my life. Now what I want to do is shift from this passage and what it's describing about Paul's motives, Paul's approach, Paul's disinterest in pleasing people and his great concern with pleasing God. And I want to consider more centrally, where does people pleasing show up in our lives? And I want to just speak maybe broadly culturally, and then I've got a bunch of specific areas where this enslavement to people's opinion might show up for you. Let's speak broadly culturally. Uh, let's jump off of the first century where this passage was written and look into our own lives. It goes without saying, right? We certainly live in a culture that is obsessed with approval and affirmation. And it's a little bit ironic how this has worked out. So in previous generations, you would receive and you would maybe be concerned with approval uh, being affirmed by playing your role in society. There was a big view of society, a big view of, uh, you know, the, the um, community that we're all a part of, and each one of us plays a small role in it, a small part of the bigger community. And the way we would perhaps receive um, affirmation would be playing our small part in that community. Our generation, on the other hand, the age we live in, is not focused on the broad community, but we are obsessed with what? Obviously, the individual. The individual and then the authenticity of the individual. Uh, and, and what we mean by that is that we, we need to live out on the world stage who we understand ourselves to be at the core. Uh, we need to be true to ourselves. We, we avoid trying to be fake. Don't try to be someone that you're not. Uh, don't try to fit into some mold given to you by society. Be true to yourself 
and don't worry about what other people think. And so you'd think we would be the generation because we're so focused on ourselves where we just live out our true selves on the world stage and who cares what people think about us, right? We would think that's what we would be. Oddly enough, as we've hyper-focused on our true selves, we have become obsessed as a society with people approving of us. Um, While on the one hand, we're very concerned with who we are as individuals, we are obsessed with people seeing and approving of who uh, we understand ourselves to be. So uh, you'd think we could just live out our individual identities, but that's not enough. We need the world around us to see us, to notice us, and to give us hearty approval. Where do we see this? The uh, most obvious is, is what's happened with social media. And I, I know this is, exists especially also for people in their 20s and 30s. Um, the, the, the real place this is crushing people is teenagers. I mean, we we have, uh, have legitimately teenagers considering suicide based on what's happening on this fake world of social media. How many likes were received? Was something negative spoken across a social media platform? Like it is devastating people as they seek to live out their individual identity and then get approval through social media. It's crushing them. You, you see it most certainly in the gender discussions that are uh, happening at an obsessing level. It's no longer as it was maybe 10 years ago where there was just a desire, hey, just let people live. Let them live out their identities and, and, and be free of judgment. It's, it's shifted from that. Now I need to live out sort of my gender identity, uh, my sexual proclivities, and it's not enough that I'm just free to do that in this society. I must be applauded and approved of uh, for this, this gender identity that I hold. And even from more simple things, you see it, if you ever read any leadership article about how to lead millennials or how to lead uh, uh, um, Gen Zs, there's so much talk about the need for regular affirmation, regular approval, uh, everything that they've done. And so this is all we're saying here. What you would think would happen with a hyper-individualistic culture is that the opinions of people wouldn't matter. The opposite has happened. As we've focused deeply on ourselves, what we realize is this constant craving for people to approve and affirm us. Now, uh, I'm not just here to point out at the culture and talk about, look at how enslaved they are to the opinions of people. Let me shift to us, and let me just give a few categories for where people-pleasing to a unhealthy degree might be showing up in your own life. Um, Here here are just some areas to, to think about. Maybe this is an issue for you. If you have the incapacity to say, no. Just, just practice it together, like uh, just on the count of three. Just let me hear you say it. One, two, three. No. no. Some of you cannot say that word. And so you live your life so stressed out, pulled to the margin at every place, um, not because you're just a high energy person and you want to do a lot of stuff, but because you cannot handle the thought of telling someone no, them disapproving of you, and like the devastating feeling that would have. And so you've got a plate that's way too full, not because you want to be busy and active and serving God, but because you just do not want to say no. You're fueled by the opinions of people. But there's another way that this could manifest, and that is perhaps through your inability to say yes. So whereas some of us, because we want to approve people to approve of us, we uh, you know, can't say no to anything. For others of you, there may be genuine desires that you have, genuine things that God is maybe calling you to, uh, genuine things that you ought to pursue, but you don't because 
What if you fail? And what are people going to think about you? What kind of fool will you look like in the eyes of people if you take steps in a certain direction? I mean, what would happen if you asked out that girl and she said no? You just couldn't handle it. It would devastate you. What would happen if you pursued that leadership position or that new opportunity and you failed in front of the eyes of people? That would be crushing. You couldn't handle it. What would happen if you just simply took steps towards relationship, towards inviting people in your life, taking initiative towards building some community around you? Well, what if people say no? What if they're busy? I just couldn't handle the, the, the crushing thought of them rejecting me, saying no to me. It could manifest through the inability to say yes. Maybe people please in another category is just through conversation dominance. Uh, you're, you're always at the center of the conversation, going on and on, and you're not even aware of it because the spotlight needs to be on you in your social interactions. Conversation dominance. Maybe people pleasing shows up for you and just always second guessing yourself. So you're, you're always looking back on your interactions, what you said, what you could have said, uh, your performance, and you are hypercritical of yourself. Why did I say that? That was so stupid. Oh, they must think I'm a complete fraud. If only I could go back and have said this instead. And you've got this just looming anxiety after your interactions, after maybe work performances or things like that, because not necessarily that you did something wrong, like that's not what bothers you, but what do people think about me? Why, why did I look so foolish to them? It crushes you, and so you overanalyze every situation. Here's one. How about taking criticism? Here's what Proverbs says about taking criticism. Proverbs 15, 31 through 32. The ear that listens to life giving reproof. Reproof is just criticism, correction, someone pointing out a flaw in your life. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof. Just as it's life-giving. It's not even somebody like, like trying to be a troll. Like this is life-giving correction. Uh, whoever li listens to that, it says, will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself. This is saying if you cannot receive correction from people, you literally hate yourself. But he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Wow, what a gift that would be. I mean, uh, life-giving reproof. It causes you to dwell among the wise. Uh, it says that um, if you don't receive it, you despise yourself. Uh, that if you listen to reproof, you gain intelligence, you grow in intelligence. And so obviously, understanding this, we would be people that would welcome criticism in our lives, right? Maybe from some people, but when your spouse or the right person has something to say to you, we all of a sudden become what? Not receptive Proverbs type people. We become defense attorneys. Oh, hold on a second. I have a reason why that's a problem. Uh, or no, 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 no. Let me help you understand. The thing you're bringing to me, uh, you, you're, you're misunderstanding it. Here's why I did that. Or here's why I act that way. Like we don't, we don't receive this as a gift in our lives to help us. We throw up walls of defenses. Why? Because if someone's criticizing me, that must mean I have lost favor in their sight. It must mean that they're not approving of me, and we cannot handle the thought of someone disapproving of us. And so we, again, we just become defense attorneys. Our, our attorneys, are you able to receive correction in your life? Do you welcome correction, reproof, criticism in your life? Here, here's another one. Let's get a little deeper. 
uh, people-pleasing and obsession, what people think, could show up with just your refusal to be honest about the sin patterns and struggles in your life. We want to not parse words. The sin in your life will kill you. It will destroy your marriage. It will destroy your career. It will destroy everything good in your life. It will destroy your relationship with God. And James like five understands that like even as we walk with Jesus, we will have sin in our lives and he has a simple solution for how we deal with it. Confess your sins to one another, James five says, and you will be healed. But instead of being healed, we hold on to it. We hide it because we think that there's something far worse, far worse than this sin destroying my life. There's something way worse than that. Do you know what it is? Someone in my community group thinking slightly less of me. Like someone in my, in my church or, or a relationship, like what would be far worse than this sin in my life destroying me is for, for their perspective of me to change slightly, which you know what's crazy? Every time somebody shows up to a community group setting or comes to me as a pastor and just says, I've got to be honest, this was happening in my life. My view of them does not decrease, but my respect for them increases. But we believe the lie that if I'm honest about what I'm struggling with, people will reject me. I will be crushed under the weight of their disapproval. And so we just hold it in and we let it destroy us. We, we can't be honest about where we are in life because we are dreadfully afraid of what people think about us. And then let's just hit one other area where people-pleasing might be showing up in our life. And this comes right out of the passage. This is maybe the most important one we need to consider is, I, I wrote on here our fear of sharing the gospel. I might even just change it and say our refusal to share the gospel. Our refusal. So let me just read once again the context that this is coming out of when Paul talks about pleasing people. He says, In verse 2, though we had already suffered and been treated shamefully at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul is saying, as I preach the gospel, there will be shame and conflict, and yet he found boldness to do that. What we just want, I want us to hear freshly this morning is that the people in our area, in our city, They desperately need to hear the good news of Jesus. They are perishing, and yet we have the antidote. We have the solution. But it's almost as though, instead of giving people what they need, the gospel, we take from them what they want, what we want, their approval and acceptance. So they need the gospel, and we need to share the gospel with them, but instead we take what we want, their high thoughts of us, their respect, their approval, instead of giving people what they need. It's as though we would rather have their approval and let them go to hell than have them disapprove of us and possibly be saved. We would rather have people's approval without them having the gospel than having them disapprove of us and possibly be saved. That's what this passage is about. But Paul understood, hey, as much as I maybe would like for just a second people to think well of me, there's actually something bigger going on in the universe than people's well thoughts and respect of me. The, the bigger realities are eternity, judgment, a bloody cross and a resurrected savior on Sunday morning, people desperate in their sins that need salvation. That, those are the bigger realities that I'm gonna base my life on, not on what people think about me. Uh, how many of us are controlled by what people think instead of just allowing ourselves to share the gospel? Man, I see it here. I'm increasingly burdened as I visit Old Town in the middle of the day. Old Town is littered 
with kids who should be in school, but are not. They've just kind of given up uh, like at Osborne and trying to like shepherd them back into classrooms. They're just out here existing, facing God knows what kind of difficulties and struggles in their life. Uh, meanwhile, like suicide rates among teenagers, they, they, a recent study came out coming out of COVID that one out of every six teenagers, one out of six have not only thought about suicide, but have like put a plan together in their mind for how they would do it. One out of six. Like that's what's happening with even just this one group of people, teenagers in our city that are just out there. And yet, even as I interact with them, I find myself with just this timidity to tell them about what Jesus has done. Why? Because we would rather have approval from people than share the truth of the gospel, share the truth of what God has done. We have to overcome people-pleasing because the gospel is far too important. There's way too much on the line. And so then, let's just go to our last point. How do we overcome our people-pleasing? This is what I want us to understand. All these categories, whether it's not being able to say no, um, not being able to take criticism, uh, not being able to confess your sin. Understand, these are symptoms. These are not the problem. These are the headache. This is not the flu, okay? Uh, they're, they're, these are symptoms of the problem, not the problem itself. And so we have to get to the core. What is the deeper problem? Why is it that you and I are so desperate for the approval of people? And I'm going to get a roundabout way of getting to it, but, but Keller, Tim Keller makes this great observation about health in our bodies. So uh, here's so just some good news that I'll share with you this morning about myself and my own health. My right ankle is perfectly fine this morning. It's doing well. I don't need a doctor visit. I don't need any physical therapy. I don't need any medication. It's doing great. Do you know how I know my right ankle is doing fine? Because I don't notice it. Your... Uh, you can tell that something is working properly in your body because you simply don't notice it. It just does its job. It does its thing. It, 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 it's not calling for attention. And as you get, isn't it true for people who have grown in years that all of a sudden you start noticing your body a lot more than, 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 you, ever, than you ever did? That, that noticing means that something is off, something is wrong. We know that something is healthy because it just does its job. Uh, you notice it when something's wrong. It's a signal. It's a warning sign. And so this is then the point. Why are we so aware of ourselves all the time? Why are we so aware of what people think about us? Why does our ego need constant affirmation, constant approval? Why do we obsess about our performance and what people think? Because if our sense of self was healthy, if our sense of self was functioning the right way, it would just go about its life, do what it's supposed to do, and it wouldn't even be noticed. And yet we notice ourselves and what people think all the time. Why is that? If we were made to love God and people and forget about ourselves, why are we so concerned with ourselves all the time? I think it's because deep down, even if you're not a religious person, deep down, we know that we are not what we should be. We're fallen. The Bible would use the word sinful. If you could shine a light, a spotlight, on who we really are, like no holding back, the true honest picture of who you really are, we would understand that if you could see who we really are at the core, we would be completely and utterly rejected. And so, we live under this constant awareness 
that we have disapproval, even if we wouldn't put religious language on it. We live under a constant awareness that we have God's disapproval. We are not what we should be. And that feeling is called shame. Shame is this deeply uncomfortable feeling that we have. But shame, again, is the symptom that something is wrong. It's not the problem itself. And do you know what the uh, approval of people does for us with this issue, issue of shame? It's like a quick cortisone shot. Have any of you ever had a cortisone shot for like tendonitis or like a, like a elbow or something like that? What, what is a cortisone shot? It doesn't heal the problem. It just takes away the pain for a while. So with my inner sense of sin, my inner sense of shame, when I get those increased Instagram likes or I get that well done at work or when somebody notices my appearance uh, or when someone speaks well of me, it's not curing the problem. It's just a quick cortisone hit to our sense of self. A, a, a quick, quick, quick covering the pain of our shame, but it doesn't actually change the problem. It's not enough to heal us. Because at the end of the day, as well as people can speak of us, it does not solve the deeper problem. The standard that our lives are judged by is God's law, God's design, God's purpose for our lives. And because we fall short of it, we shame, we self-loathe, that's our regular experience. But it's into this that Jesus steps in. And I want to close with you by inviting you to turn over to Isaiah chapter 53. And we're going to look at 54 as well. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53 to see how Jesus has stepped into this predicament of inner shame, inner rejection. Isaiah 53 verse 3, describing what Jesus would experience on our behalf. It says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Listen to this, as, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So right out of the gate here, what do we see Jesus the Messiah experiencing? Rejection. He knows what it's like to be rejected, hated, cast off from the approval of people. But that's not the most important rejection that he experienced. Let me continue to read in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. So here is our issue. We know we fall short. We know we are not what we should be in the sight of God. And so what we want to do to solve that is cortisone shots of human approval. Uh, but this passage helps us understand what will actually heal us. It says uh, our transgressions don't need Instagram liked. They need to be pierced on a cross. Um, our iniquities don't need pats on the back from people. They need to be crushed. Our, uh, our sin does not need applause, praise, or glory from people. It needs chastisement. That's the only thing that will bring us peace. That's the only thing that will set us free from our shame. But guess what? This passage is saying when Jesus came, he was the one who was pierced for your iniquities. He was the one crushed for your sins. Upon him, not you, 
uh, was the chastisement that brought us peace. All of our shame is the result of our sin against God. Our sense of self is broken because something is indeed wrong with us. It's our sin against the Lord. But the good news of the gospel this morning is that Jesus steps in, he takes the blame. He's pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what Jesus experienced in our place in Isaiah 53. He takes the consequences of our sin. He pays for it in our place. Isaiah 54, do you know what it's about? It's about what you get to experience as a result of what Jesus did in your place. And I want to read specifically Isaiah 54, verse 4. We heard what Jesus gets. Listen to what you get here in verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. What is this saying that we get to experience? It says we will not be ashamed anymore. You will not be disgraced. The shame from your youth, the feeling of disgrace and regret for what you've done in your past, you won't feel that anymore. Why? Because it's been swept under the rug? No, because the God of the whole earth has put your sins on Jesus and now holds you in his love. And what God has for you because of Jesus is nothing but love, acceptance, and affection for you. That's the good news of the gospel. Hear me, what we're not saying about your shame, your sense that something is wrong with you, it's not as though God is saying, yeah, you've done some bad things, but just forget about it. Don't feel bad about it. That, that's not, in essence, what's, what's being said here. The, the feeling of shame that we carry in our lives, that we look for people to approve us, to help us with, um, that feeling of shame is tied to sin. And God is not just saying, hey, forget about it, don't worry about it, just don't feel ashamed anymore. What he's saying is, because of Jesus, the root has been removed. Your, your sin has been covered. So the feeling of shame just fall to the ground. It's not as though we're just sweeping under the rug and we'll try not to feel bad anymore. God treats, listen to this, listen to this. God treats you as though you had never sinned. As far as the east is from the west, the Psalms tell us, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And so now all we have is the adoring affection of God, and that sets us free from having to be enslaved to the opinions of people. Let me read the passage in 1 Thessalonians one more time. This is, the, this is what we live out of. But just as we have been approved by God, that is what we live our lives out of. We have the approval of God because of Jesus. And so now, what does that set us free to do? It tells us, we speak not to please man, but God who tests our hearts. So no more cortisone shots that you need from the praise of people to help you feel better about yourself. Because Isaiah 54 says, you will not be ashamed, disgraced, or rejected. You've been made acceptable through all that Jesus experienced in Isaiah 53. And so let's prepare to come forward to communion this morning. And as we take the bread, remember that Jesus' physical body was beaten and broken for your sins so that you don't have to feel shame anymore.
And when we take the cup, we remember that Jesus' blood was poured out. What does Jesus' blood do for our sin? It covers it. That means in God's sight, it's not there anymore. It's gone. So the subsequent feelings of shame from your sin, they simply fall to the ground. Because all that's wrong about you has been covered by the blood of Jesus. So would you take those elements this morning and hear just the approving love of God that's been given to you? And if you're here this morning and you've not come to a place yet that you've received the good news of what Jesus has done for you, we believe that communion is a meal for Christians. It's a meal for those who've trusted in Christ. If that's not you, we would invite you to, to remain seated. And I would encourage you to think about while you remain seated, maybe just that question of why is it that you're so hungry or concerned with what people think about you? Could that be a symptom of something deeper going on in your life, a deeper issue of something being wrong? That deeper issue is the fact that you have sinned against God. You are not what you should be, and yet Jesus gave himself for you. I'm going to pray the way we'll take communion. Uh, this morning is every morning. You can remain in your seat and reflect for a moment. You can come forward. What Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you. And then whenever you're ready, you can go back to your seats and on your own time, uh, take, take the elements. Let me just pray for our time now, and you can come forward when you're ready. Father, thanks for not just numbing our sense of shame, our feelings of wrongness and inadequacy but taking away our shame's very root. You have covered our sins with the blood of your son so that we are free. Forgiven, free, and now in a beautifully right relationship with you. So Lord, from that place of freedom, would you set us free from being constantly aware of what people think about us, constantly trying to please the people around us, and would you just give us the, the, the beautiful freedom of self-forgetfulness, knowing that we're taken care of, we're okay. Help us to serve you and to love the people around us, not so that they think highly of us, but because that's what your love for us indebts us to. So Lord, speak, speak the, the gospel over us. Cover our shame in, man, even just specific places of shame that are in this room this morning. Let them be brought to the cross, covered, and set us free. We love you, Lord. Thank you for these truths in Jesus' name. Amen.